0: Good morning, everyone. Great to to see you in person. And uh, in my mind, I'm seeing you all uh, online at home. Uh, Again, welcome here. Great to have you with us, especially if uh, you're a guest or just joining us for the first time. Uh, we love having you here, love having you tuning in, and uh, we are going to spend uh, some more time uh, again today in the Word of God. And so uh, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 16. Uh, I'm going to pray for us just before we get into it, so, uh, so join with me. Uh, Lord God, we are thankful for uh, an opportunity uh, to come and gather together, uh, be it in person or be it online. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, use this time. I pray in particular, Lord, that you would speak to us as, as the church, Lord, that in light of the text today, we would have a renewed uh, sense of your mission, a uh, renewed sense of calling in our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would use us, and I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. I pray for those that are, that are guests or tuning in, God, I pray you would reveal to them a better understanding of who you are and, uh, and who is the church. Why are we here? What are we to do? Uh, so shape us and mold us, Lord, by your grace. Uh, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, what you might have noticed already if you uh, if you looked ahead a bit in our text uh, is that our text has to do today with the harvest, and I have to confess i 'm not really familiar with harvesting um, the most sort of uh, I guess the closest experience I've had uh, with harvesting is uh, through uh, television, through the the miracle of television. Um, Don and I, for a period of time, we watched uh, British TV shows quite a bit, and there was a show that we watched called Lark Rise to Candleford. Anyone know that show? Uh, It's set, uh, you know, like they always are, a hundred years ago or something in England somewhere, and uh, in this case, there were two towns. Uh, There was this little hamlet Called Lark Rise, peasants, farmers, tradespeople, and then Candleford, which was the bigger marketplace town. And uh, it was a great show, lots of, you know, drama, as there always is. But uh, the one thing that I remember is there was one show where it was harvest time. And all of the people in Lark Rise, in the little hamlet, uh, came out to bring in the harvest. Uh, in fact, uh, Lark Rise was surrounded by fields of wheat. Uh, the wheat wasn't owned by those people, it was owned by the, the wealthy landowner. But their job, part of their role each year, was to come out. As and so the men all came out, bandanas, the big knife things, you know, and they would sing work songs, and they would bring go through the fields, and the, the women and children would come behind them and bundle the wheat, and it was, it was a, a huge amount of work. It was a community uh, enterprise, but also I thought it was interesting, they found great joy and purpose in the work of the harvest, even though it wasn't actually their wheat. And that's my connection to harvest. Maybe some of you have actually, you know, brought in a harvest. But when Jesus speaks about harvesting, the people back then, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have known the, the difficulty of the work and also how important it was. They would have known as a community in those small towns around Galilee that harvest time was a time when everyone came out because it was vital to the rest of, of the year. So today we're going we're gonna to learn about what Jesus means when he says harvest, and uh, what we're going to do is read through most of our text, and then look at three points having to do with this harvest work. Uh, as I said, we're going to start with uh, verse 1, and in this case, just go to verse 11 for the, for the time being. So here's God's word to us this morning. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. And sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house." And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking. What they provide, for the labor deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say... Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So that's the first section of our text. Um, And our first point is is this. There's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to do. And in the specific work that Jesus is talking about here to these disciples, we see in verse 1. He says... After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So this is very similar to Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9, Jesus sent out the 12. Here he sends out the 72. Or if you look, there's probably a note in your Bible, you'll see that uh, some manuscripts say 70. So a larger group of disciples and their job was to be an advanced team. Jesus was going to go still, travel around teaching and preaching, but the job of the disciples was to go two by two uh, and kind of uh, let people know that Jesus is coming and proclaim the message that he is going to come and proclaim. Now, the number itself... 70 or 72. Some people try to find some significance in that number, especially the number 70. If that's the number, they see it as connecting to, I mean, there's a lot of 70s in the Old Testament, 70 elders in the time of Moses, 70 Gentile nations. The truth is we don't, we don't know for sure. Probably the greater point here is that this work, this harvest work, is not just for the 12 apostles. This is for all of the disciples, all of us, everyone who follows Jesus is called to this kind of harvest work. And Jesus makes very clear what exactly is the mission. The mission is comprised of two things, uh, word and deed. Uh, we are to speak a message that God gives us as disciples, but also to do things to show uh, the love of God. Uh, look at verses 5 and uh, 9. You see this. Uh, he says, Whenever you, uh, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house and if a son of peace is, of, is there, your peace will rest upon him. Uh, verse 9, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So the word, uh, the message is, is the same kind of message that Jesus was proclaiming, right? He would go, he would say the kingdom of God is at hand, you need to repent, uh, the, the kingdom is, is coming, it's, it's here, and for the Jewish people, this is what they've been waiting for. They they were always anticipating the kingdom. They knew uh, that the kingdom meant a visitation from God himself, from the Old Testament prophecies. They knew that it meant that there would be peace and protection and hope and that this would never end. They were all excited about the kingdom. They also knew uh, that the kingdom would be inaugurated by the Messiah, by the Anointed One, uh, the one that God would send to rescue and redeem his people. But you have to understand, at the time, uh, there were a lot of people... A fair number of um, would-be prophets or teachers who were going around and saying, I-, "I am the Messiah, right? I'm the one. I'm sent by God," and they were trying to to rally a following. Uh, same is true today, right? Every cult leader will say, "I have I've heard from God. I have a special word. I have some special insight. You need to come and follow me." So Jesus, he 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 does speak words of truth that that connect directly to the Old Testament. That's the first important thing about his ministry. But the second important thing is that he validates his message through his miraculous works, through his deeds. And we see here that he's sending out his disciples to do the very same thing. They are to proclaim the kingdom is coming, same message, you need to repent, Jesus is the Messiah, but also they're to combine it with loving works. This is the same today. In fact, this is the... This is really what Christian ministry looks like and has looked like throughout all of the ages, that the church goes out and we, we have a message of hope from God, here's the good news, but also we accompany that with loving works, that we actually care for people so that they see we're not just talking about love, we're, we're showing love. This is the model for Christian work, and that requires that we as disciples are trusting of God, that we trust him for to really connect with the people and help people, even today. The works that we do are miraculous at times. Other times, uh, sometimes they just seem miraculous because God so touches people through just our regular everyday acts of love. I read an account uh, of this kind of thing uh, by commentator Philip Reichen. He tells a story of this young man in Vietnam and how he became a Christian. Uh, He said his first encounter with Jesus, he didn't grow up in the church, his first encounter with Jesus was in ninth grade. He had a serious motorcycle accident. Uh, So in Vietnam, they start driving motorbikes young, obviously. So uh, in this case, the both bikes were totaled, like just carnage. But miraculously, really, both of the drivers uh, were unharmed. He was unharmed. The other man, though, immediately started praising God. He was a Christian, And this young guy was so struck by, they'd never seen anyone. He was just praising God for protecting them, caring for them. It made a real impact on this this young man, this ninth grader. He didn't think much of it, though. Just kind of went through high school and then decided to move to Hanoi, uh, the the capital city there. Um, He didn't have a job, didn't really have any job prospects, uh, didn't have much money, didn't really know anyone. So young man, high school graduate, moved to Hanoi, and uh, thankfully got connected with a group of Christians there. Uh, He didn't know they were Christians at the time, but they just saw that he was in need, uh, started helping him out. Helped him find a place to live, helped him find a job, uh, began to invite him into their friend circle, and gave him a New Testament. And he began to read it because he was so curious about their worldview and the way that they were interacting with him. They started inviting him to their church services, and in time, at a sharing service, he, he came to faith, he became a Christian and then began to serve in Christian ministry. But listen to what Philip Reichen says about this whole, this whole story. He says this, It was the gospel message that saved this young student, of course. But God used the loving care of Christian people to give the gospel entrance into his heart. This is how God brings people to Christ. By the good news we give them about the death and resurrection of Jesus and by the love we show See, if you've come to faith uh, later on in life, you probably have experienced this. I did. I was invited by my neighbor to youth group, and the first thing that struck me was just what a great place it was. There were great people. I was welcomed in, and then they began to, to speak the message of the gospel, and God began to, to change my heart. The interesting thing, though, I think, if, if you were to ask these Vietnamese Christians from this story whether they thought they were doing anything exceptional, I think they probably would have said No. It wasn't like they all got, you know, got together and said, we're going to go on a local mission trip. We're, we're going to go out into the city and look for people. I, I, don't, I don't think probably what happened is they just met someone who was in need. Met someone who, who had you know, problems, really was in a, in a rough spot, and they began to just naturally help him, show love to him, and also naturally share the hope that they, that they had. Sometimes... Uh, As Christians, we can feel that ministry work is special work, right, done by special people. Even with this text, we can maybe get the impression, look, if you're going to go and do the work of ministry, well, you got to be sent out. You got to have like kind of a, a sending time and then a specific period of time that you go and do this work. But in fact, that's not what we find throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, especially the early church, what we see is that the church just does life. And as they interact with people, we began to show the The love that we have. We care for people naturally. The only requirement, really, is that instead of living with our head down, uh, we live with our head up. We look around. Instead of just getting through each day, which, I mean, is so, that's, we understand that, right? All of us, every day, there's enough on our plate that we can make it through the end of each day, probably, and feel kind of exhausted, right? Whether it's work, school, family, whatever it is we got going on, Many of us can think we've had a full day just by getting to the end, but, but we might not realize that really we've been, we've been living like this. We've been doing our day with our head down, dealing with our problems, dealing with our things, maybe important, big things, but there's a difference when we put our head up. We look around. There's a big difference when we pray at the beginning of the day, Lord, Lord is there someone today that I need to take some extra time for them? That they have a need that I can help with? Lord, would you help me not to go by them quickly? So easy to do that. So easy to forget the people that are around us and the need that they have and the opportunity we have for harvest work in our daily life. Uh, my first pastor was uh, Pastor Carlin Weinhauer from Willington Church, where right? I came to faith and I ended up serving on staff for a while with him. And he had a lot of great sayings. One of the sayings he had uh, was this He said, Ministry is always just a phone call away. And what he meant by that is, doesn't matter what you're doing, if if you want to do some ministry, all you need to do is connect with someone. Just pick up the phone. Uh, back then, I don't think texting was a thing. So today, we just text someone. Direct message someone. Just take a moment and ask God, who is it that might need a word of encouragement? Who, who is it that might need uh, a message from, from God or simply an encouragement or an act of love? When we live that way, we will find there's a lot of work. So much work around us in terms of the lives of the people who are there. That's what Jesus is saying. It's harvest time. There are souls of people who need to be connected with. But the other thing he's saying is that the the workforce tends to be small. This is our second point. There's a lot of work to do, but the workforce is small. Now, we see this in Luke uh, verse 2. Right? He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The laborers, those who are going out to do the harvest work. So just to be clear, the harvest is the souls of those people out in the world. The laborers are the disciples. And what Jesus is saying is that there are not many disciples who are actually willing to to go out and do this kind of work. And to be fair, it's it's not hard to see why that there are not many people who are stepping out in this way. If you look at the way that Jesus characterizes this work, this harvest work, look at what he says. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, Go your way, Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. That's the harvest work. Doesn't sound like very, very great work, right? Uh, wolves, just just so we're clear, obviously a metaphor. Uh, he talks about wolves a lot of times in the New Testament. They're always having to do with people who oppose uh, the work of the church, so, uh, in the book of Acts, he talks to the Ephesian elders. He says, Look, there are wolves that are going to be uh, raised up amongst you. You've got to be careful. Or in Matthew 5, he talks about false prophets as ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. And always the Bible is saying to the church, You have to protect yourself, guard yourself against the wolves, because they are there to deceive and to discourage. Their whole goal is to weaken or destroy the faith of those uh, in the church. Um, The church is always told to defend itself against these attacks. So it's really interesting that here, the wolves are not coming to attack the sheep. Jesus is saying, go out into the forest. Go out where the wolves are. Which is sort of surprising, you would think. It's also surprising, I mean, if Jesus was going to do this, I'm sort of surprised that he actually calls them lambs. Because it's not very heartening, you know what I mean? You, you could have used other animal imagery. Uh, it made me think of um, when I, in the fall, I was down in San Diego for a conference, and I went on the aircraft carrier there. And I remember looking at all the fighter squadrons, and uh, all of the U.S. Air Force fighter squadrons. They have some really like tough names, and they have badges. I found some badges. Here are the ones I found uh, online. Uh, if you were going to fly out, you know, like in an F something fourteen, whatever it is, um, you could be a bounty hunter, right? Or a Jolly Roger, right? A fierce pirate, a tiger shark. The last one didn't have a name. I think it was Flying Cobra. What I didn't see any of were like lambs. There were no lamb fighter squadrons because lambs, they only do one thing in a fight. They get eaten. That's all they do. So why would Jesus call his disciples lambs and why would he send them out with so little resources? Right? No shoes on their feet, no money, no bags. Why would he do that? Well, he did it because... He doesn't want them trusting in the wrong thing. That's why He did it this way. See, there will come a time, right before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus, He says to the disciples, gather your things. Get your backpack, get your sword, get all your gear, because you're going to go, I'm going to the cross, I'm going back up to heaven. You need to gather all your gear. But now it's training time. Now Jesus wants to make very, very sure that they understand there's one key ingredient to a successful harvest, and that is that they trust God. That they don't trust themselves. That they rely on him for their strength and provision. Because the truth is that we are lambs. We are sheep. On our own, we have so little wisdom, so little courage, so little strength. We're so easily deceived and overcome and overwhelmed. The first lesson to really being a disciple of Jesus is to stop trusting ourselves and to trust him fully. For everything. That's a tough lesson for us though, isn't it? We don't like that lesson. Because it feels so uncomfortable. It feels so unnatural. Think of all of our life. What are we used to doing? And what are we told? Look, you need to find the strength within yourself. Right? You need to do the things that you know you can do. Gather your resources. Whatever's at hand. And to accomplish the things that you set out, out to do. This is why we'd rather stay home. We'd rather not do harvest work because it clearly means that we have to put ourselves in very uncomfortable and difficult and dangerous situations. And Jesus makes clear that the the work is not always going to be successful. Look, um, Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So he's making very clear. Uh, when you go on this mission, it's not always going to be successful. When you try to have spiritual conversations with people, you're going to be rejected a lot of the time. That's part of the work. It's not always the case that people are going to be receptive to what you, you have to say. And the effect of that for us as disciples, those of us who are walking with Jesus, is that we can feel discouraged. We can feel discouraged. We can feel fearful. Especially, we've had a lot of pushback, and we can tend to think, "Look, there's, there's no point to this. It's kind of hopeless." It's interesting that that even uh, arguably the greatest harvest worker got discouraged like this. The Apostle Paul. He also there were times when he was feeling low and 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 fearful, even so much so that uh, God comes to him in a vision to encourage him. Look at what um, happens in Acts 19. Verses 9 and 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now notice the encouragement that God brings there. He says, says, no one is going to harm you, which is especially... Helpful for Paul because in most cities he was beaten, he was arrested. I mean, he was used to a lot of pushback, so much so that God knows he's kind of beginning to feel fearful. So he's saying, In this case, I'm going to be with you, but notice the other encouragement. The key encouragement is he says, In this city, you can't see it, but there are many, many people that are my children. I've already predestined them for faith. What they're waiting for is for someone to come and share the message, the gospel. God is encouraging Paul by saying, there's things that you can't see. You have to step by faith. You have to believe if I'm sending you out that there is a harvest there. Do you know the same is true for us today? What was true in Corinth is true for us in our cities, wherever we live, in our, in our workplaces, in our schools. There are many, many people whom God has called and yet they're waiting for the workers, for the laborers to be faithful. For us to go and just share our love, both in word and deed, and, and see if, in fact, the Holy Spirit is going to open their eyes and their hearts to respond in faith. See, we should never think that it's pointless or hopeless. Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful. He says, There are many in this city who are His people. So, our job, our joy, is to go out into the fields and, and reap the harvest. And you notice part of the way that we can accomplish this is is through prayer. Not just part of the way. The essential way we're going to do this is through prayer. Look back at verse 2. He said, The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You notice the role of prayer. We We are not just to respond and to go and to do the work we are, but we also need to pray for others. Pray for other workers to do the same work. Um, before Don and I planted uh, Tri-City Church, we were supported by uh, the c to c Church Planting Network uh, for about a year. And one of the things that this network did, uh, their leadership, they always set their phones uh, to, an alarm was set for 10.02 a.m. And that's because they were thinking of Luke 10, verse 2. And at 10.02, uh, if you were with them in a meeting, the, the the phone would go off and they would stop and they would pray. They would pray that the Lord would send more laborers. They wanted more church planters, more missionaries, whatever it may be. And that, I mean, that's, I think, the right heart that we should have. That kind of discipline, that kind of intentionality, taking God at his word, that we're to pray and God answers. As a church, I'm not sure if we're praying this way as much as we should. As individuals, I question whether I am. Uh, I think this sort of discipline, this sort of intentionality, God speaking to us and saying, look, there is a harvest in Canada, harvest here in the Lower mainland. As a church, are we being faithful? Are we believing what God says? Are we praying? Are we responding? Because it's very clear that the stakes could not be higher and that the urgency is there. You see this in the way that Jesus is communicating to his disciples. He's saying, I'm sending you out for harvest work and this, this is of vital importance. This takes us to our third point. The third point about this work, there's work to do, the workforce is small, but number three, the work has eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. See, right after Jesus talks about uh, the rejection that his disciples will experience, uh, he pronounces judgment and woe on the towns that reject his disciples and their message. There's a real sense of heaviness here. So I'm going to read the last few verses of our text all the way to 16. It begins in verse 12. He says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The town that rejected his disciples. Verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Okay. That's the end of our our text. Now, you can see already in there, you probably noticed some of the words judgment that were there. Uh, That's because, indeed, that's what this is about. Judgment. And there's another phrase uh, he says, on that day. Whenever Jesus says, on that day, he's referring to the day of judgment, the final judgment, at the end of the age. And that's the time when God will judge humanity. When our works will be brought before us, we will be judged either unto heaven or unto Hades or hell. That's what's in this text. Now, the part that makes this, these series of verses confusing, though, I think for us, is all of the talk about these different cities. For the people back then, they would have known these cities. For us, I don't know if you noticed, but he's, Jesus is kind of comparing two groups of cities. And so I thought um, it'd be helpful if we look at these cities on a map and look at the, two, the difference between the two groups. So we're going to put a map up, and you're going to see that there are uh, two groups of cities. One of them are, are quote-unquote good cities, and the other are wicked cities. So Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum in blue there, uh, they are the good cities. They're good uh, because they're Jewish cities, because they're in the area that Jesus was doing ministry. See, around the northern part of Galilee there, they would have had faithful synagogues. Uh, if any Jewish person would have thought, who is God going to bless? Uh, he would have thought the people in these cities. But the other cities in red, they're on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean. And they were known to be, quote unquote, wicked cities. Because they were pagan cities. They, they worshipped idols. They worshipped false gods. Uh, the other city not uh, pictured there is Sodom. That he mentions Sodom is the most wicked city in the Old Testament. So imagine how shocking it would be. Because what Jesus says is it's going to be more bearable on the day of judgment for the wicked cities than for the good cities. And The people would have been like, what, what are you talking about? Sodom? It's going to be more bearable for, for the people of Sodom? Then for Capernaum, then for these Jewish cities, what, how, how could that be? Well, what Jesus is doing is, here is he's trying to teach his disciples something important, a couple of important things about the final judgment, things that when you understand them fully, they, they, they grip you with the reality of the coming judgment, and they propel us forward with the work of evangelism. So we're going to look at the two things that Jesus is teaching here about the final judgment. Here's the first one. He says here, there will be varying degrees of punishment in hell. That's the first lesson that that he gives here: that there will be varying degrees of punishment in hell. And the reason we know this to be sure is because of the phrase, more bearable. Twice Jesus uses that phrase. It'll be more bearable uh, in that day for Sodom than for the, the, the Jewish city that rejected his disciples, right? It'll be more bearable... For Tyre and Sidon, then for you, Capernaum. What he's saying there is that on the day of judgment, all those who are in sin, all those who are deserving judgment, they will be punished. But for some, it'll be easier than for others. This is also shown in other parts of the New Testament. Here's one other uh, example. There's a few more. But Luke 12, 47 and 48. uh, This is a parable that Jesus is telling about a master who goes away and leaves his servants with work to do. And he comes back and all of the servants have not done what they should have done, but notice the difference in consequences. Uh, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. You see the difference? He's not saying that, that there will not be consequences for sin, but what he is saying is that God is just that there is in fact greater condemnation for those who had a greater awareness of the commands of God. And so when we understand that, we can understand why the Jewish cities that did not accept Jesus, they were deserving of greater punishment because they knew the commands of God. They knew all the scriptures. They should have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Those pagan towns who had never experienced the light of God of the scriptures, they were less deserving of the wrath of God. And yet both would end up in hell, both justly punished for their sin. But what we're seeing here is the justice of God. In fact, we see this in our own justice system. If you think of a situation where one person has killed another, uh, if, if that person killed them by accident or through negligence, not really aware of what they were doing, then they were probably charged with manslaughter. But if there was criminal intent if there was forethought, if they knew what they were doing could lead to someone's death, it's second-degree murder or first-degree murder, the sentencing is different. What this tells us is that God is just and that we should be very aware of the extent to which we are responding rightly to the truth of God's Word. The second thing it shows us is that salvation is solely dependent upon our acceptance or rejection of Jesus. Notice that this is the issue. This is the issue of whether we will be in heaven, exalted to heaven, or or brought down to Hades. And this is something that the human race always gets, is always confused about. I was talking to a man uh, a little while ago, talking about, you know, where do you think you're going to go when when you die? What what hope is there in an afterlife for you? And he said the thing that is most often said by people in that situation. He said, well, look, you know, I hope I'm going up, but... Because of what I've done, I think I might be going down. And I said to him, "Man, it sounds like it's all on you." That, and that's true. That's what his idea was—that he thought it was completely based on his works. But he's—he's only partially true. What we see is that we are judged by our works, but our hope, our hope, is not in us. Even see this in our text when Jesus speaks to Capernaum in verse fifteen. He seems to be saying, "And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven?" You get the sense he's saying, "Do you think?" Because you're so good, because you're keeping all of the law as much as you think you can, then you're, then you're going to be exalted? But he says, no. No, you shall be brought down to Hades. And you can imagine those people of Capernaum saying, why? Why? We've done so many good things. In verse 16, Jesus gives the answer. And I'm going to read it again. I'm going to switch out the pronouns so it's a little clearer. Here's what verse 16, how, how it reads. Jesus says, The one who hears my disciples hears me. And the one who rejects my disciples rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects God the Father. See, Jesus is making very, very clear the deciding factor is whether we accept the gospel of Jesus. Whether we, we know him as Savior and Lord. In fact, Jesus makes very clear throughout the New Testament that he is the way. He is the light. No one comes to the Father except through him. Acts 4, 11, and 12 says this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Bible makes, makes no mistake about this. It, it's not unclear at all. It says all human beings will be judged. We, we live in a universe that is a just universe. All wrongs will be held to account and none of us has reason to hope in of ourselves. It's only Jesus. It's only through his death where he takes all of the sin of humanity upon himself and pays for it, takes the sentence of death upon himself, and then his life, his perfect life, that he lived to earn the righteousness of God, and then his resurrected life, showing that he conquered death. That is the only hope that we have. And on the day of judgment, we are going to be held to account. And our record is going to be brought up and how do we plead our case? The only hope is if we plead the cross. The only hope is if we don't point to anything that we have done, good or bad, we simply say, I am deserving of death and yet Jesus, he took it all for me. And at that point we are exalted to heaven, not because of our works, but because of the works of Christ. And those who do not plead the cross of Jesus will perish eternally justly punished for their sin. Do you see why we can't stay home? Do you see why there's so much work to do? And and that we should have hearts filled with the joy of doing this work? Because there's so many, maybe some of you listening here, that haven't yet accepted Christ. That are hoping in so many other things. So many other means of finding peace and hope, and they might work for a short amount of time, but on the day of judgment there is only one hope. And we, we the disciples of Christ, we have the, the opportunity, the joy, the privilege, and the duty of going and doing the work of the harvest. The gospel. The gospel is the thing that needs to be communicated. The gospel is the hope. I have to confess that I I don't always have the urgency that I see here in this text in my own heart for this, even though I'm here preaching it, right? It's easy to go through each day and be caught up with other needs. I was thinking this week of how how my ears perk up when I hear about a vaccine, right? Hear news of a vaccine for the virus. I always want to hear, well, how's it going? Has someone found it yet? And that's, we should be thinking that way. It's good and right that people are spending millions and billions of dollars. We need to find a vaccine, absolutely. But do you realize that even if they find a vaccine, that the benefit for that is so limited that even if it's for the next generation, we need that. It's a good thing, but it does not give us a hope on the day when we really need it. It's only the gospel that does that. Just to put it in perspective in terms of the urgency and the excitement and the intensity that we should have as the church, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. said so the laborers are few He's given us work to do. It's good work. It, it's a work of eternal significance. It's a work that as we put our effort and energy and resources toward it, we will never be sorry that we spent more time trying to reach people for the gospel. In fact, we will be keeping up joy in heaven as we had an opportunity to see people there that we didn't even know we had an impact in their lives. So I'm going to pray. We're called to pray. I'm going to end by praying for us as a church and for those of you maybe watching who haven't yet accepted Christ. My my question to you is why not? Why why would you not seek further to know more about this, this man who claims, not just claims, but has shown us that he is the only way to God because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, because of the impact that he's had on the world. And for those of us who are his disciples, may we be motivated to respond to the call and to do the work of the harvest. Let me pray. Lord God, Lord God, I so thank you for these texts that remind us right from the beginning of of who we are as a church, who we are as your disciples. You're teaching your disciples. Cast everything off. Trust me and go out into the world, a world that hates me and will hate you, and yet a world that needs to be saved. Jesus, you make very clear that there are things that are of eternal significance and that if we don't have our heart and mind wrapped up in it, we are gonna miss. We're gonna miss doing your work. We're gonna miss a greater joy for ourselves and miss helping those around us. I pray, Lord, that wouldn't be the case for us here at Tri-City Church. I pray, Lord, this week that we would, we would live it with our heads up, that we would be in prayer in the morning throughout the day saying, saying, Jesus, help me to see those people who are in need. Help me to step out and trust you fully. And Lord, I do pray for those who are watching who haven't yet accepted you. I pray you'd open their eyes and their heart to see their sin, to see their hopelessness apart from you and that they would repent and confess and come to faith. And Lord, I pray they would reach out, that they would, they would, be, they would be welcomed in by us as the church, even in this COVID time where it's so hard to connect. Jesus, I pray that you would be bringing more and more people into your fold. That we would see that yes, we are lambs and yet Jesus, you are the great shepherd, the good shepherd you love us, you lead us into good pastors. I pray for us, Lord, that you would encourage us and preserve us and save us. And that we would have the joy of doing that work of ministry with you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.